I said uh, last week that um, what I wanted to do tonight in kind of a summary fashion is to, to basically cover the, the entire narrative of the ten chapters of Esther, uh, but to do it by calling attention to what, what I've termed uh, links in the providential chain. And basically the premise of that is um, the, the events involving Esther and God's people at this time in history worked out to a certain end. Uh, God's people were saved, they were spared, uh, and God uh, kept His promise to maintain the descendancy line, the genealogical line of Abraham, uh, regardless. And so, you know, ultimately things worked out with, with that as the accomplishment. But in order for things to work out the way they did, there were a lot of things that had to happen a particular way. And that's what I want to call attention to tonight, are those links that, that go together that make up the entire story. Now, understand, though, that you know some of these things could have happened differently, and, and God would have worked them out in a different way. All right? Does that make sense? Um, but the way they worked out had to involve, ultimately, these things that we're going to talk about tonight, or they would not have worked out the way they worked out. God would have still kept His promise, but He could have done it differently. Does that make sense? So I'm not saying in what we do tonight, I'm not saying that this is the only way that God could have caused Himself or could have brought about the, the fulfillment of His promise. He could have done it in a variety of ways. But this is the way that it was done. Uh, and so there were certain things that had to happen the way they happened in order for it to turn out the way it turned out. Make sense? Okay, clear as mud. Great. So some links in the providential chain. And then hopefully at the end we'll summarize it with some, uh, some major lessons that come out from the book. We begin in chapter 1 with Vashti's refusal... Uh, to parade herself in front of uh, the king's guests. And that refusal by Queen Vashti caused a crisis. Uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Now, here's how I'm going to try to link these things together is through asking a series of what-if questions. What if it didn't happen that way? Well, if it didn't happen that way, then things would not have turned out the way they ultimately did turn out. In the story. So Vashti's refusal causes a crisis. Well, what if she didn't refuse? Remember, the king comes in and, and says, I want you to parade yourself, parade your beauty before these assembled guests that were there for a drunken feast. And she said no. Now, remember, ultimately, we're going to need somebody in a position of power in the kingdom of Persia to be able to wield authority to save the Jewish people from annihilation. When Esther chapter 1 opens, that person is not in that position. And so somehow God's got to get that person in that position. So Vashti disobeys the king. Well, what if she didn't? Well, then there's, there's some other way God would have to get somebody in a position to... Um, 
to deliver her people, to deliver the people. Well, she refuses. But what if it wasn't a crisis? Okay? When she refused, it all of a sudden became this, this huge uh, problem, this huge ordeal where the, the king's advisors were saying, we're going to have anarchy in the whole kingdom if we don't do something about this. And so it became this extremely blown out of proportion ordeal. Well, what if when it happened and she refused, what if they just said, they just kind of laughed it off and said, well, you know, it's, it's no big deal. We'll, we'll deal with it some other way. Well, again, Vashti is still going to be in power as, as queen, and that needs to change for things to work out the way they were. So her refusal to, to, to parade her beauty before the, the gawkers is an important link in the chain, as was the king's request of her. What if he never made that request in the first place? Now, the king's advisors, as we mentioned a moment ago, when he decides he needs to do something about that, they, they recommend that she be removed, that she be dethroned, and the king agrees with that, and that's what created the need for a new queen. Again, well, what if they suggested something else? What if when he said, we've got a crisis here, what are we going to do about that? And they said, you need to just bring, bring her in and reprimand her severely. Make sure she doesn't do that again. Well, if that had been their suggestion, again, she remains on the throne. But then what if they suggest that she be removed as queen and the king says, mm, I don't think removal is necessary. I think we can handle this a different way. So again, all of those things were important in the laying out of the story the way it laid out. Now, chapter 2. When it comes time, ultimately, for the, the king to do something about the vacant uh, throne, of uh, the queen's throne, the suggestion is made, verses 1 through 4, that they would select a queen from a new uh, harem. In other words, the, the suggestion was go out into the, the, the Persian Empire and gather up all the beautiful virgin women uh, and bring them to the palace, and we'll prepare them, and a new queen will be sought from among this new harem. Well, that's how Esther's going to get to be in the palace, because she's going to be one of the ones selected. So what if, when they decided to, to uh, select a new queen, what if they suggested that they, he pick somebody from the existing harem? Well, then Esther's not going to be there. So it was important for them to choose that arrangement by which the queen would be selected. So that's an important link in the chain. So they go out, chapter 2 still, and uh, they're gathering women from the, the, the kingdom, and they come across Esther. And we're told in chapter 2, verse 7, that she was a physically attractive person. What if she wasn't? You know, that's what they were looking for, right? Was that funny? <laughs> you know, some people aren't physically attractive, right? Huh? Okay. What if she wasn't? What if the people looking said, you know what, maybe she's too plain. Whatever, we don't want her. Well, she was physically attractive, and that was important. That's how she gets to be in the harem. Chapter 2, verse 9. Now that she's there, 
she wins the favor of the fellow named Hegai, who was the one that was in charge of the harem, in, in charge of getting the ladies ready uh, to, uh, to go into the king. <clears throat> and she, uh, for, for whatever reason, and we're not told how she did this, but she, she kind of stood out uh, and, and um, became kind of a teacher's pet, uh, we might say. Well, what if, what if that hadn't have happened? That might have adversely affected uh, the way things played out. Verse 10 of chapter 2, while all this is going on, Mordecai tells Esther, don't reveal your history, your family history. No, don't, don't tell them you're a Jew. Well, the way the story ultimately plays out, the timing of her revealing that was very important in the way things played out. So what if she revealed that too soon? Things would have turned out differently. All right, verses 15 through 17. Esther wins the favor of the king. When she has her opportunity to, uh, to go into the king, uh, she does. And, um, uh, and, and, he, and the, the text says that the king loved Esther more than any of the others that were brought into him. Again, what if she didn't? What if she didn't please him? What if, he, what if he wasn't enamored with her? Then she doesn't get selected as queen. Now, while all this is going on, end of chapter 2, two disgruntled uh, men, palace workers, are making plans to assassinate Xerxes, the king. And they discuss their plan with each other within earshot of Mordecai. He overhears them. All right. What if they didn't? What if there was no plot? This plot is going to be a major factor in, in the way things turn out. What if they decided that they, you know, what if they never had that idea that they wanted to try and figure out a way to assassinate the king? But let's say they did, and they discuss it. Well, what if they didn't talk about it in a place where Mordecai could overhear them? What if Mordecai was somewhere else that particular day when they were plotting and he overheard them? So the fact that they plotted, and, and what was it that made them so disgruntled? What was it that made them so angry at the king that they would even want to assassinate him? Well, we don't know, but that played a part too. So Mordecai hears them. What if they're plotting and he doesn't hear them? He's somewhere. All of that was important. Then, verse 22 says, that Mordecai reports what he overheard to Esther. What if he decided not to? This is a major part. It's going to come to play later. What if Mordecai just decided, you know what? Xerxes is no righteous individual. I don't owe him anything. Um, you know, I'm just, going to, I'm just going to sit on this information and see what happens. Things, things would have taken a different turn. So he doesn't ignore it. He reports it to Esther. What if Esther ignored it? <laughs> you know, what if, what if she just decided that it, that it was an idle threat and there wasn't anything to be worried about and, and she just ignored it? Well, she doesn't. She tells the king it's investigated, it's discovered to be true, and the plotters are uh, taken and dealt with. Then, that whole scenario 
is recorded in the annals of the king, the record of the king's reign. Chapter 2, verse 23. And, and you know, the, the names are... Mordecai is mentioned as the one who discovered the plot that saved the king's life. Well, what if it wasn't recorded? And what if it was recorded, but it was recorded anonymously? That, uh, that you know, a, an unnamed subject in the empire uh, revealed this plot and, and saved the king's life. So the fact that it was recorded is important. The fact that Mordecai's name was specifically mentioned is important. Chapter 3. Mordecai <clears throat> refuses consistently to bow down to Haman. Remember Haman? Haman's the wicked plotter, the second in command to the king, and, uh, and orders are that he was to be worshipped. Mordecai wouldn't do it. And... Um, <clears throat> And the fact that he didn't is, is going to be the catalyst that gets the Jewish people in jeopardy, uh, ultimately, at the hand of Haman. But what if Mordecai just acted like everybody else? He just bowed down like everybody else did. It was important that he didn't. Because he was right to not do that. Then, verse 4 of chapter 3, Mordecai reveals his Jewish heritage. He reveals it to certain individuals who had come to him and said, Why don't you bow down to Haman? And his answer was, Because I'm a Jew. The implication being, As a Jew, I, I don't, you know, we don't bow down to anybody but God. Now, it's because Mordecai is now known to be Jewish that Haman is going to direct his anger not just at Mordecai individually, but to Mordecai's people, the Jewish people. Now, it's still not known that Esther is a Jew. At least the king doesn't know that. But he will eventually. And so... Haman gets this law enacted that the Jews are going to be annihilated on a particular day. I think it was some 11 months or so uh, into the future from the time the law was enacted. And the, the law is publicized and Mordecai learns of it. What if, what if they had made the law but didn't tell anybody? They were just going to carry this out secretly. Well, an important link in the chain was the fact that everybody knew about it. Because that leads to the next things that happen. Mordecai mourns in public. Now we're in chapter 4. Mordecai is, is, is dressed in sackcloth and is uh, in deep mourning for the lives of his people. And he's mourning outside the, the gate, but in view of, uh, of Esther. And so she engages him in conversation about what's going on. Well, what if he didn't mourn? What if he didn't do this overtly public act that got Esther's attention? It's important that he do that. Well, <clears throat> Mordecai ultimately convinces Esther to do something. Remember that in the latter part of chapter 4 where, where Mordecai is sending word to Esther and she back to him through these messengers and and he says, you've got to do something and don't think that you'll escape the, the ramifications of this law. 
And that's when he made the famous statement, who knows but that you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. One of the key verses, if not the key verse of the book, where Mordecai says, maybe, Esther, perhaps you have been placed in the position that you're in just so you can be here at this time to do this good thing to save your people. And so he convinces her ultimately to do it. What if he didn't? What if she just steadfastly refused and said, I'm not going to do it? If I walk in to, to his throne room uninvited, I could be killed. And I'm just not going to do that. Well, it was important that she do it. And she ultimately did, thankfully. All right. So the next day, or after three days, actually, of fasting in preparation for that, chapter 5, Esther walks in uh, uninvited. And the only thing that would save her life was if the king extended his scepter to her as a welcoming gesture. And he did that. What if he didn't? What if those guards that were standing there just took her life? It was important that he welcome her, and he did. Now, Esther, um, Esther does not reveal the crisis immediately. This, this covers really chapters 5 and 6. She doesn't reveal the problem when she's there in the throne room. She invites the king and Haman to a banquet, which she doesn't reveal at that first banquet. Uh, she says, well, come back to another banquet tomorrow, and then I'll tell you what the issue is. Well, what if she had revealed the matter too soon? There, there are some things that are going to happen between banquet number one and banquet number two that are vital to the story playing out the way it did. So it was important that she not reveal this too early. So Haman, so now the banquet one is done, and Haman is uh, headed back to his house, and he just happens to pass Mordecai, chapter 5, verse 9. Just happens to pass him, and Mordecai does the same thing that he's always done. Nothing. Okay? He doesn't bow down this time just like he's done before. And that's, that is going to set Haman off in a way that he hadn't been set off before, which is going to be important. Well, what if Haman is walking home that day and he doesn't see Mordecai? What if Mordecai somewhere else? What if Mordecai took a different route that day? What if Haman took a different route that day? It was important that they cross paths, and they did. What if Mordecai, when they did cross paths, what if that day... You know, he just he, he he was just tired of fighting. Maybe he was maybe what if he had had just a bad day and he said, you know what, I just don't want to have to deal with this guy today. And so he just he just bows down. Then Haman wouldn't have gotten angry, which plays a part. Chapter five, verse fourteen. Haman gets home. And, and says, you know, here's all the good things that happen. You know, I've got, I've got family. I've got, you know, I'm, I'm second in command to the king. Uh, nobody else but the king and I were invited to the queen's banquet. I've got all this stuff in my favor. But then he says, but none of that matters to me. As long as Mordecai refuses to bow. So Haman's wife in verse 14 suggests, why don't you just hang him? Just kill him. Get him, get him out of your hair. 
hang him first thing in the morning, she suggests. And then, when he's out of the way, you can go to the Queen's Banquet and enjoy yourself. Have a ball. Well, what if nobody suggested that? Then things don't turn out the way they turned out. Now, that very night, so Haman goes to bed that night with plans. He's going to get up first thing in the morning and he's going to go to the king and ask for Mordecai's life so that he can hang him. Well, lo and behold, that very night, the king can't sleep. He's got insomnia. And so he decides, since he can't sleep, I'm going to have somebody read to me. And so he chooses that someone read to him from the chronicles of his reign. Read my own history. Okay? Uh, Read from my own diary. And the person who's reading, at some point, as the morning is dawning, the man is reading over the event from chapter 2, where Mordecai had discovered the plot on the king's life and He foiled the murder plot and uh, the king's life was saved and and that develops uh, a a great appreciation in the king's mind for Mordecai. Now, a lot of what-if questions here. What if the king didn't have insomnia that night? What if he slept like a baby? What if he had insomnia, but when he decided... I need to do something to try to help me get to sleep. What if he decided something besides being read to? What if he tried counting sheep? What if he said, no, I want somebody to read to me, but read me something else? What if he said, I can't sleep, I want to be read to, read from the Chronicles, but the man reading read some other section that didn't include the Mordecai story? See, all, all of those are links in the chain. Chapter 7. Haman's plot is revealed at the second banquet. Incidentally, of course, you know, the, the, the middle part of that, that I think is a great part of the story, uh, is, is when Haman comes in <laughs> to ask for Mordecai's life, and the king says... Uh, I want you to lead Mordecai through the streets and sing his praises instead. Not not anything necessarily that, that has a direct link in the chain, but I think it's my favorite part of the story. So the, the, the banquet happens, the second banquet, chapter 7, and Esther reveals the plot. Here's the problem, she says. It's this wicked man, Haman. Well, first she just speaks generically, you know, I've, I've come to plead for the lives of my people. And the king says, Who's, who, who has your people in danger? And she said, it's this wicked man, Haman. What if she chickened out? What if the king asked her and, and she said, you know what? It's really not that big a deal. Well, certainly it was a big deal. But what if she just chickened out? And just decided not to not to tell it for, for fear of some other kind of repercussion. What if she became afraid of Haman herself? Chapter 8. <clears throat> After Haman is executed, Xerxes the king places Mordecai in Haman's office. 
and gives him law-making authority. In other words, he gives Mordecai the signet ring that, that puts laws into effect. Well, what if the king stopped short of that? What if he didn't elevate Mordecai? What if he didn't give Mordecai the authority to make whatever law he wanted to make? And Esther, too, involved in that. Well, the law is ultimately created that allowed the Jews to defend themselves. And in chapter 9, they do that. And the lineage of Abraham is preserved. All right. <clears throat> Could God have saved his people through different means? Well, sure. Yeah. But this is the way he did it. And in order for him to do it that way, all of those links in that chain had to happen the way they happened for it to turn out the way God intended for it to turn out. Now, at what point in any of that did God override the free will of the people involved? Nowhere. He didn't make anybody do anything directly. God and his sovereignty, and we talked about this in the early classes, that, that it's, it's a mysterious, yes, attribute and characteristic of God that we cannot fully explain how God can utilize the attitudes, the decisions of a world full of people to bring about a certain end, a certain conclusion Yet everybody who's making the choices involved in that are still responsible for those choices. But that's what you've got in Esther, and that's what you've got in other places too. Uh, great providential stories in Scripture. Joseph, for one. One that I had wished we'd had time to, to, to look at. It's one of my favorite providence stories in, in the Bible, and that is how the Apostle Paul gets to Rome in the book of Acts. You want to see a good providential story? Start reading in about Acts 21 and read through the end of the book of Acts. Acts 28. Seven chapters. Eight chapters. I never was good at math. Whatever. It's, it's a few chapters. Read read through the book. But it's, it's a great... <clears throat> God tells Paul in the middle of all that, you will speak for me in Rome. Prior to that, Paul was not sure if he was going to make it to Rome. He wanted to. I'm kind of getting a little bit ahead of myself because on Sunday we're going to start studying Romans. We're going to talk a little bit about this Sunday morning. Um, but Paul wants to go to Rome, but he's got to go through Jerusalem first. And he's, he's, taking, uh, he's taking a gift, a financial gift, from the Macedonian churches to the needy saints in Rome. And he tells the Romans, because he writes the book of Romans from the city of Corinth, he tells the Romans, I'm going to take this gift to Jerusalem, and then I want to come to Rome on my way ultimately to Spain. And then as the latter chapters of the book of Acts play out, which is the historical record of Paul going to Jerusalem with that gift, he keeps hearing from both the Lord directly and from Agabus the prophet on one occasion that 
he's going to have problems when he gets to Jerusalem. You're going to be turned over to the Gentiles. Sorrow and persecutions await you there. And so he even says, as, as the, the, the elders of the church in Ephesus try to beg him not to go, he says, I, I don't count my life as dear unto myself. I just need to fulfill my mission as a faithful minister of the gospel. And if that means I die in Jerusalem, then so be it. So he wants to go to Rome and then ultimately to Spain, but the closer he gets to Jerusalem, he keeps getting told by others that you're, you're going to face persecution when you get to Jerusalem. And so now Paul's not sure, am I going to make it to Rome or not? And the Lord appears to him in, in the middle of all that and says, you will speak for me in Rome. So he gets assurance that he's going to get there, but how's he going to get there? Well, ultimately, Paul gets to Rome and he never has to spend a dime of his own money. The Romans take him to Rome because he gets arrested in Jerusalem and turned over to the Romans and he appeals his case to Caesar, which was the right of any Roman citizen, which Paul was. And so now he gets to let Caesar gets to hear his case. Where's Caesar? He's in Rome. So Paul ends up getting taken to Rome where he can fulfill his responsibility and preach the gospel there. And it didn't cost him a dime. He went on Rome's dime. It's, it's, an amazing, it's an amazing story of how God in His providence got Paul where Paul needed to be. Anyway, read through that, Acts 21 through 28. Now, before we finish uh, tonight, we've got five minutes or so, I want to list some of the major lessons. Some of these we've talked about throughout the class, but I want to emphasize them uh, one more time. Number one, even in the exercise of our free will, God can overrule our intentions for the accomplishing of His purposes. In other words, we may have the intention to do one thing. In other words, we're going to do X for a particular purpose. But God may say, All right, you're going to do X, but it's going to fulfill my purpose, not yours. Okay. One example of that uh, was Joseph. In Genesis 50, verse 20, when Joseph had finally revealed himself to his brothers after all that was said and done, and, and they had done so many things bad to him, wanted to kill him, they sold him as a slave, all that stuff. Joseph said to his brothers, Genesis 50, verse 20, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That's the point. Joseph's brothers were not trying to do Joseph any favors. They, they meant evil against him. But God took their evil intentions and their evil actions and ultimately worked something out that not only benefited Joseph, but benefited the brothers who had evil intentions to begin with. That's what we're talking about. The providence and sovereignty of God. One more example on that uh, from the book of Isaiah. It's one of my favorites. Isaiah chapter 10. The prophet Isaiah is, uh, is talking about what God is going to do to Israel by way of punishment because of Israel's idolatry and sin and how he's going to use the Assyrians as what he calls the rod of his anger. Isaiah 10, beginning verse 5. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. 
Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. So God says, the Assyrians are in my hand. They are going to do my bidding. They are going to tread down a nation that has turned away from God. And they're going to seize plunder, and they're going to tread down the place. They are the rod of my anger. The staff that's in their hand, he says, is my fury. All right? But look at verse 7. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. In other words, the Assyrians don't realize that they're, that they're the rod in my hand. They're not trying to fulfill my will. That's not their intention. End of verse 7. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. In other words, the Assyrians, the only thing that they've got in mind is conquer. They just want to conquer people. But God said, I'm going to use that. I'm going to use their desire to just overthrow nations, and I'm going to use them to punish my people because they've turned their back on me. But the Assyrians are not intending to try to fulfill my will. That's not what they're trying to do. They're just trying to, they're just trying to overrun people. All right, you want to overrun people? My people need to be overrun, so I'm going to use you to do that. All right, so the Assyrians' intentions were evil. God was going to use them to accomplish what was ultimately something good, discipline for God's people because of their idolatry. All right, does that make sense? Lesson number next. <clears throat> Satan is powerful, but God is more powerful. Ultimately, behind the, the, uh, the desire of Haman to exterminate the Jews was Satan, ultimately. To try to thwart God's plan for the redemption of mankind. Satan's powerful. And, and we underestimate his power to our own peril. He is a roaring lion, 1 Peter 5, 8. So he's powerful, but God's more powerful. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 1 John 4, verse 4. Next. Oh, we're out of time. Um, <clears throat> faithfulness to God will not always be easy. There will be times when we have to do hard and unpleasant things to be faithful to God. It's not always going to be easy. It's possible to fulfill God's will even when you're surrounded by unbelievers. Well, that's where Mordecai and Esther were, weren't they? Surrounded by unbelievers. They still accomplished God's will. So can we. And sometimes, here, one more, it's always darkest before the dawn. Things looked really, really bad for God's people, but they came through it. Things can change so quickly. So when we feel like we're, we're crumbling under the weight of some difficulty, just hold on. How long? Just a little longer. Things can change. One more. Boast not about tomorrow, for you know not what a day brings forth. Proverbs 27, verse 1. And that can have both a negative and a positive connotation. Things can happen tomorrow that may be hard. But things can happen tomorrow that may take something that's been hard and turn it into something good.
We don't know what a day brings forth. We don't know what the future holds, but we know what? We know who holds the future. And in that, we can take comfort. All right.